This morning, we'll just be looking at verses 25 through 29. John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Here we pick up and read this. The apostle John writes, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. and Those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning. We're touched by the reading of the Word of God. We're moved by the songs that have been sung and the instruments that have been played. And now we're ready to hear the voice of our Lord. We're ready to dig deep into your Word and to have your Holy Spirit enlighten the heart and mind of every believer. We could understand and apply these truths into our lives on this day. God, I pray that you would change us, and that you would grow us, and that you would give us great hope of the return of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, there was a patient who kept hearing voices in his head, and so he went to see a psychiatrist. As he was lying on the couch answering all of the psychological questions, the shrink finally put down his pen and looked at the man and said, Turn off the TV, close out all the apps on your iPad, shut off your cell phone, GPS, Wi-Fi, iPod, and your Bluetooth headset, and let me know if you keep hearing the voices. Sometimes that's how it feels in the day we live, right? There's voices coming at us from every angle in the sense of various media uh, things, and we wonder kind of what's going on. Am I hearing things? Did you hear about the lady who decided to try ice fishing? She went out and cut a hole in the ice and then she uh, heard a loud voice say, there are no fish under the ice. Amazed at hearing a voice speaking to her, she wondered if it was God. She finally convinced herself she probably imagined hearing the voice, so she tried drilling a hole in the ice in another spot, and again she heard the voice, there are no fish under the ice. Is that you, God? She responded, to which she heard the reply, no, this is the ice rink manager. <laughs> Sometimes, again, we just think we're hearing voices in our head and we're not sure if it's true or not. In all seriousness, hearing voices is a common type of auditory hallucination. Hallucinations are sensations or perceptions that occur but are not really real. They, they occur in a wakeful state and they seem real, but they're actually created by the brain. Overall, auditory hallucinations are the most common type of hallucination. These can include familiar sounds, unusual noises, and even human voices. The voices in auditory hallucinations can be pleasant or they can be threatening. Hearing voices can be associated with some psychiatric disorders or medical conditions. According to the DSM-5, psychiatric conditions associated with hearing voices include bipolar disorder, psychotic depression, schizoid personality disorders, 
and schizophrenia. True, medical conditions affecting the central nervous system, such as brain tumors, delirium, dementia, epilepsy, seizure disorders, and stroke, can be associated with hearing voices as well. Voices may also be associated with high fevers. Well, from all this, we learn that if someone is really hearing voices in their head, it is no joking matter. When I served as a PA in the medical world, I heard on a number of occasions different patients telling me they heard voices in their head. As a pastor and a counselor, from time to time, I'll have someone come into the office who say, Pastor, I feel like I'm hearing voices in my head. Well, today, I want to talk to you about the voice. And no, I'm not talking about the reality show of the singing competition. All right? I'm talking about the voice of the Lord. I'm talking to you about the voice that we will one day hear, all of us, in our head. I'm talking about the voice above all voices. I'm talking about the voice that will call out to people of all ages, whether living or dead. Jesus says in this text, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This means that there is a day when we will all hear His voice. This means that there is an hour coming when God's voice will go out to the four corners of the earth. His voice will go out to the uttermost parts of the world. His voice will be heard from the highest heights to the lowest depths. And every person who has ever lived from the time of Adam all the way up to the present will hear this voice. This voice of God is louder than mighty rushing rivers. His voice is stronger than the tempest upon the sea. His voice is more powerful than a ground-shaking earthquake. And His voice is more fierce than a 200-mile-per-hour wind of a Category 5 hurricane. The voice of God can be heard by a baby who has never been born, by a deaf person who's never heard, and by an aged person who has lost their hearing. This voice will be heard by every sinner and by every saint. This voice will not be shut out by the darkness. This voice will not be muffled by our sin. This voice will not be overcome by Satan. This voice of God will be distinct. It will be unmistakable. It will be indisputable. This voice will be as clear as a bell. The voice of God will pierce the heart of every man. It will awaken the soul of every human being. And it will bring either fear or comfort to every person who has ever lived. All will hear His voice. This voice of God will separate the sheep from the goats. It will send some to heaven and others to hell. This voice will either say to you, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's reward. Or it will say to you, and you will hear one day, Depart from me, for I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Well, I hope that you'll listen today to the voice of Christ. I hope you'll marvel today at the teachings of our Lord. I hope that today you will hear His voice. And as we look at this passage this morning, I simply want to give you three headings that will help us understand what it is that Jesus is saying as you seek to hear His voice. 
Here's the first heading. If you're taking notes, it should be there for you in the outline. Number one, the already but not yet principle. The already but not yet principle. As we dive in and just examine these five verses, look at verse 25 where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now here in John chapter 5, we've learned so far how a man was healed by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. This is at the beginning of chapter 5, and it started no small debate about who was really Lord over the Sabbath. Was it the Jews and their 39 man-made laws, or Jesus, who said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? And so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And so Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he is Lord over the Sabbath, and then he also makes it abundantly clear that he is equal with God, that Jesus is on par with God. In fact, look down at verse 17 from last week. We talked about how Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their mind, but he was even calling himself, uh, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Last week, we looked at seven ways by which Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is equal with God in working. He is equal with God in being. He is equal with God in knowing. He is equal with God in resurrecting, in judging, in honor, and in, and in regenerating. These are seven ways we looked at last week where Jesus is equal with God. And this morning, we're talking about how all will hear his voice at the resurrection. The question should be asked, well, which resurrection is Jesus talking about? In verse 25, when it says, well, all will hear his voice, and then it says there, uh, and it is now here, but then he says, when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God. And so we've got to ask the question, what, what, what resurrection is Jesus talking about in this context? Is he talking about a spiritual resurrection in this life or a physical resurrection after you die? And that's why I wanted to explain to you this concept or this principle already, but not yet. Let me give it to you in three subpoints. You ready? This is your first blank if you're taking notes. We're talking about already, but not yet resurrected. Already, but not yet resurrected. I believe here in verse 25, Jesus is talking about the believer's spiritual resurrection in the present. And the reason I say that, again, is because in the middle of verse 25, he simply says, the hour is coming, and then he says, and is now here. It's now here. So he's talking about the fact there's a resurrection already here, a spiritual resurrection of every believer. And he starts off verse 25 by saying, truly, truly, this is the third time in the chapter Jesus said that. He's saying, listen to me. This is important. This is absolutely true. There, there's an hour or a time coming, but it's also here. It's coming in the future, but it's also already here. It's already happening. It's not fully done, but it is coming. And what, it, and what, it, what is it that is already happening but not fully done? It's the resurrection. The resurrection, it's already here, but it's not fully done. Let me explain. The Bible talks of man as being spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Colossians 2.13 says, and you who were 
dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So the Bible clearly establishes the fact that though we are alive physically, we're born dead spiritually. And what can a dead man do? A dead man can do nothing but stink. That's all we can do, right? There's no works we can do. The Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we are spiritually dead. There's no life. There's no spiritual breathing. There's no heartbeat. There's no legs to stand on. There's no righteous works being done. Nothing. Just plain dead. But then we read in those same contexts of Ephesians 2 and Colossians chapter 2 as well, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, that it's by grace we've been saved. And Colossians 2.13 says the same thing, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So it's also understood here that in this verse, verse 25, that the dead are being resurrected, spiritually dead, are being spiritually resurrected. But notice that it says that it must be those who are hearing the voice of the Son of God. Not everybody's spiritually resurrected, only those who hear the voice of God. And this word here, there in verse 25, is the word akuo. You might guess that's where we get our English word acoustic from. And this word akuo, this word to hear, means more than just the auditory process of sound waves coming into your ear canal. It it means to heed. It it means to obey. It it would be like me telling one of my kids after I, you know, ask them to clean their room, and maybe I walk in their room, and it's not perfectly clean yet, and I'm like, hey, kids, did, did you hear what Daddy said? In that moment, I don't necessarily mean, did you audibly hear what I said? I mean, did you do what I told you to do, right? And so in the same way in the Bible, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when the word hear is used, hear the word of the Lord, it's implied that not only are you hearing, but you're acting upon it. And we understand that Romans 10:17 says that faith cometh from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so maybe we could just pause for a moment and ask the question, have you heard from God? Have you heard the voice of God this morning? Have you listened to the words of Christ? Because it is only those who hear with spiritual ears who will receive a spiritual resurrection. It's only those who hear and repent. It's only those who believe with all their heart in Him who sent His Son into the world that will pass from death to life. In fact, listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this in his commentary on the gospel of john he says this quote such hearing of course is something more than mere listening it's hearing as a humble scholar hearing as an obedient disciple hearing with faith and love hearing with a heart ready to do christ's will this is the hearing that saves we're reminded from the apostle james that be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, right? So we understand as Christians, it's not just about hearing the good news, it's about putting it into action. Now, only God can save a dead soul, right? But the point is, you can't just say, I heard it and never respond to it and somehow think that you're saved. And so the idea here, again, of the spiritual resurrection is that you're already spiritually revived, made alive. You were dead, you're made alive. But as you hear 
the gospel, as you hear the grace of God, you begin to put that into action in your life. And this word in 25, verse 25, the word life here is the word, it's not the word bios, which refers to biological life. It's, it's the word zoe, which is the, the Greek word for eternal life. So when he says in verse 25, the dead will hear the voice and those who hear will live, he's not talking about physical life, he's talking about spiritual life, the abundant life, life everlasting, life in the here and now, and continuous life even after you die. And this is what Jesus talks about when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so he's talking about it as a spiritual resurrection. That, that it's already here, if you're a Christian today, you've already spiritually been resurrected, but it also points to a day when the dead and Christ will also be raised up. And so we're seeing this already made alive spiritually, but in the future, you'll be made alive physically after we die. Already, but not yet. And we see this regularly throughout the Bible, not only with the concept of resurrection, but your second sub-point says, already, but not yet in the kingdom. Already, but not yet in the kingdom. Probably the, the more common way this already, not yet terminology is used in the world of theology is in discussing eschatology or end times. This is true when we talk about the kingdom of God. And there's all kind of debate or whether we're in the kingdom of God or that's something in the future, right? Are we in it right now or is that some type of reference to the millennial kingdom or even to the eternal state? It's a good question. In fact, the disciples had the exact same question and they asked it of Jesus right after the resurrection and before the ascension in Acts chapter 1. They came to him, and Acts 1, verses 6 and 7 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're asking him, is this it? Are we now living in the kingdom? And he said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Well, I think it's clear from this answer that Jesus is still referring in some degree to a kingdom in the future. I mean, he could have easily said, yeah, man, you guys are in the kingdom. Don't you know it's all only about salvation? There's no future. But instead he said, hey, it's not, it's not for you to know about whether or not the kingdom is now here. But at the same time, if you go back into the Gospels, aren't there times when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, Mark 1:15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Or how about what Jesus says in Luke 17, 20 and 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So what is he saying there? Is the, is the kingdom of God in the future, which he seems to allude to in the Acts 1, 6 through 7, or is the kingdom of God within you? In fact, that translation of Luke 17, 21 could be translated that the kingdom of God is in your midst or within you or in your grasp. And so what we're seeing here is there's this already but not yet understanding of eschatology of the kingdom of God. I would say to you that in one sense, the kingdom of God is already here in the sense of the sphere of salvation. In the spiritual realm, God is on his throne, and for every Christian, we bow and submit to a king, 
and King Jesus is Lord of all, and spiritually speaking, His kingdom is set up. And yet, there's also a future sense of the kingdom of God being fully fulfilled at the second coming when Christ comes back on a white horse, Revelation says, and sets up a kingdom, according to Revelation chapter 20, that will last for a thousand years. And so the kingdom of God is already here spiritually, but it will culminate physically when Christ comes back. Let me give you a third way to see the already, not yet principle in Scripture. It's understanding the doctrine of sanctification. That's your third sub-point, already but not yet sanctified. And so there, there are three different stages to sanctification. There's your past sanctification, what some theologians call positional sanctification. So this past tense aspect of being sanctified is what Paul refers to when he looks back at a completed event and he says to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified. And so in some ways, the word sanctification is used to refer to a past event. Positionally, you were sanctified. And in that context, he's talking about when you got saved. Same thing as justification. It's an event that happened in time when you were made holy by God's grace through the imputed righteousness of Christ, and it's a past event. That's how sanctification is used on some occasions in the New Testament. But it's not only used that way. We also have present sanctification, or what theologians call progressive sanctification. And this would be the normal use of the word if we just say, well, I'm going through the process of sanctification. You know, I had my battery die in my car this week, but I'm sure being sanctified. You know, and that's what we mean when we're just saying we're going through trials, we're having a rough time, but God's doing His work. And so that's what it means most of the time, our daily walk, that we're growing in the likeness of Christ. And it's used that way in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, when the writer of Hebrews says, for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's progressive sanctification. It's a process. It's Romans 7. The things I don't do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. He's just acknowledging there's a battle. You, you know, if we look at the chart of sanctification, it's not all going straight up. You know, you kind of go up a little bit and you go down a little bit. And you go up a little bit and you go down a little bit. And hopefully the, over the course of time, you're growing. But there's moments in, in your life where you're struggling. That's sanctification. It's progressive. It's an act that God's doing in you, but you also have a responsibility to be putting off sin and putting on holy habits in the power of the Spirit for God's glory. Well, there's a future aspect of sanctification as well. Some call it perfect sanctification, so past sanctification, progressive sanctification, perfect sanctification, and that would be a reference to what we would more commonly call glorification, and it's used this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And in that context, he's saying, hey, you're not there yet. You've been sanctified, you're being sanctified, but I'm praying that one day you'll be sanctified completely. And when does this happen? It happens at some point in the future, either when you die or when Christ comes back. And so here's the whole point of this already but not yet terminology. You are already spiritually resurrected, but you haven't yet been bodily resurrected. As a Christian, you already live in the spiritual kingdom of God, but you have not yet experienced the physical kingdom of God. 
You have already been sanctified in one sense when you got saved, but you have not yet fully been sanctified like it will be on the day you're glorified, and there's no more sin and no more shame. And the joy of all this is that you have been changed, and yet you will be changed even more. That's the joy of it. You've already been changed, but you're going to be changed even more. You've been adopted, but you haven't yet sat at the banqueting table of our Lord. You've been saved, but you haven't been fully sanctified. You've heard all about Jesus, but you have yet to see him face to face. So it is a joy to be already with Christ, but we can't wait to fully be with Christ in the future. And I believe that's what verse 25 is all about, a spiritual resurrection in the heart of every believer, but Christ himself pointing to a future resurrection when the actual dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and will also be raised. And so as we move on through the text, let's keep unpacking this a little bit more. A second heading that will help us uh, hear the voice of the Son of God is this, number two, the amazing truth of life and authority in the Son. The amazing truth of life and authority in the Son. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And as he has given authority, given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, maybe you remember last week, back in verse 20, we talked about how that verse says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. But then it said, And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And so last week we looked at it a little bit and be like, Well, what are the greater works? that the Father's giving to the Son, that the Son's going to do, because we're supposed to marvel in that. So I want to know, what, what are those greater works? Is we're, we're going to be marveling in these greater works that the, that the Son is going to do. And I told you last week that I think those greater works, if you continue to follow the flow of the passage, are listed right there. And it's simply this. It's the fact that Jesus is equal with God in giving life and equal with God in being the ultimate judge. So the greater works that verse 20 is talking about Again, it's the fact that Jesus gives life, and he is the ultimate judge. And that was un, uh, uncomprehensible by the Jewish mindset in particular. And verses 26 and 27 repeat that, those same two things. He says, again, the Father has granted the Son also to have life in himself and given him authority to execute judgment. So he's reiterating, these are the two biggies, giving life and exercising judgment. And here we could say this, your next little blank says, the Father has granted the Son to have life in Himself. So He's given the Son the opportunity to have life in Himself. That's what John 1, 4 says. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This, this is a big deal. We know that the Father has life in Himself, for from Him and to Him and through Him flow all things. But now we see with great clarity that the Son being equal with God, has this same life in himself, and he can give this same life in himself to whomever he chooses. This, again, is a, is a statement of Jesus' deity. It's the God-man that has life, and he gives life. And in the Jewish mindset, this privilege only belonged to God. In fact, in Jewish tradition, there's a rabbi by the name of Johanan who asserted that the three keys that remained in God's hand, that were never to be entrusted to a representative. Only God could do these three things. Nobody else, no prophet, 
No other person could ever do these three things. He listed them out would be these three things, the key of rain, Deuteronomy 28, 12. Only God can bring rain. Number two, the key of the womb. Only God could give life, physical life, to a mom, Genesis 30, 22. And then he talked about the key of the resurrection of the dead. The key of the resurrection of the dead, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 13. So the Jewish teaching was like, look, only God can do these three things. Only God can bring the rain. Only God can give physical life. And only God can resurrect the dead. And so when Jesus starts saying that the Son has life within himself, and he holds the same power of giving resurrecting life to the dead, it blows the Jews' mind. That's why they want to kill him. They think he's committing blasphemy. That, that, that Jesus is saying, no, life comes through me. Right? That's what he said to Martha he, he, right, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so how about you right here, right now? Do you believe that life is found in the sun? Do you believe that he can make the blind see, the deaf hear, and the mute speak? Because if you can believe he can do this, he can do so much more. Do you believe that he can take your dead soul or the dead soul of your child or your teenager or your unbelieving friend and make it alive? He can take your stench, your stench, and make it the aroma of heaven. That's what God does. He gives life to those who come to him. He can take you as you are and conform you into his image. That's why we love him. He made you alive, and he can make anybody alive at any time because that's the power of the Son. And yet we also read here in verse 27 that the Father has given him the authority to judge. That's your next blank. The authority to judge, right? So we're reviewing again what was already said earlier in the passage, and now these two are being highlighted again, life and judgment. So the word authority means power. This word authority in verse 27 means might or capability. It means the, the ability to command, control, or govern. It's the same word that Jesus uses in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus has all authority. He gives life. And he has all authority to give that life and to execute judgment and to be the ultimate judge. That's what John 13, 3 says. Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands and that he has come from God and was going back to God. Again, he's received all things, all authority, all power. It's the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays in John 17, verses 1 and 2. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over the flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. So here's what we're learning in verses 26 and 27. Jesus gives life. Jesus has all authority. He has all power. He has all dominion. Jesus is second to none. He is Lord over the heavens, and He is Lord over the earth. He has authority over this world. He has authority over this country. He has authority over this state. He has authority over this city. Jesus has control and ultimately governs your company, your commander, and your boss. Jesus makes the sun rise and makes it set. Jesus keeps the planets in their orbit. Jesus causes the stars 
to shine at night. Jesus is in control of your life and of your marriage and of your family. He's Lord over your desires. He's Lord over your temptations. He's Lord over your flesh. Jesus is king over your life, your dreams, and your heart. And Jesus will execute judgment one day. Yes, Jesus is the judge, and he judges us according to his word. And Jesus knows not only our external actions, but our internal hearts. Jesus knows not only your outer man, but your inner man. Jesus knows not only what you do in the light, but what you do in the darkness. And Jesus raises to life those whom he chooses so that he will resurrect your dead soul one day and make it alive together with Christ. But you ask, well, how can Jesus do all of that? Well, your next little subpoint says, because he's the son of God and the son of man. Here in this passage, in these few verses, both titles are given, the son of God and the son of man. In fact, the son of God, this title is first used in this gospel by John the Baptist, back in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 34, where he says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Uh, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God 43 times. Son of God 43 times in the New Testament. And uh, Jesus is not uh, the Son of God in the sense of a human father and a human son. Jesus did not get married and have a son. Jesus is, is God's son in the sense that he was conceived by Mary, by the Holy Spirit. It was the angel who said to Mary in Luke one thirty-five, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And G Jesus claimed to be unique, the monogenes, the only begotten Son of the Father of the same essence, of the same being, fully God and fully man. And the Jews understood this title, the Son of God, would have been talking about just that. In fact, they ask him as they're trying to figure it out, are you the Son of the Blessed One? Meaning, are you the Son of God? Jesus says, I am. Uh, so the idea is clear. Jesus is both the Son of God. Uh, it, it means that he possesses the very attributes of God. Uh, for example, he claimed omniscience by telling Peter this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He had omniscience. He declared his omnipotence by not only resurrecting Lazarus, but by raising himself from the dead. He showed that he has all power. He, he professed his omnipresence by promising his disciples that he would be with them even to the end of the age. And so we see throughout the Bible, this title, Son of God, totally fits for who Jesus is, as being very God. But not only does he claim to be the Son of God, he also claims, and there's another title given here, the Son of Man. And you may not know this, but the Son of Man title is actually used more by Jesus than the Son of God title. The Son of God title is used 80, excuse me, 43 times. The Son of Man title is used 88 times. This is the way Jesus refers to himself more than any other way. Twice as many, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And so you ask, well, why? I kind of like the Son of God title better. That kind of seems like that's more bodacious. That's more like, man, I am God. When he says the Son of Man, it just kind of seems kind of wimpy. Well, it's not that way. Turn with me to Daniel in your Old Testament, just real quickly, so you can be reminded of Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man title is first given with great clarity to be a prophecy of the omnipotent Son of God who would be born and would be the Messiah. It's given there by Daniel 
chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You've got to just see this to be reminded why Son of Man is such a powerful title, where Daniel writes this in chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like, here's the title, there came one like a Son of Man. That title, he's now going to describe some attributes of the Son of Man. He goes on to say that this Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So this Son of Man, who we know to be Jesus, came to God, the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And what happened? Verse 14, and to him, so from the Ancient of Days to the Son of Man, from the Father to the Son, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages, should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Jews had chronicled that title in their mind, Son of Man, is a reference to the Messiah, to this unbelievable uh, person who's on par with God. And Jesus is now claiming here in this passage, he said, I'm the Son of God in verse 25. And then now he's saying here in verse 27 that he has authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. It's his kingdom that has dominion over all. He's been given this kingdom and this authority by his Father. He's fulfilling the Daniel chapter 7 prophecy. And so he's truly God, but he's also truly man. Fully God, but fully man. You kind of had the Jews on one side asking, could Jesus really be God? And you had the false teachers on the other side asking the question, could Jesus really be a man? So these two titles are emphasizing both deity and humanity, but at the same time, in his essence, he's only one being. He's fully God and fully man, again, the hypostatic union. And so we need to hear the voice of the Son of God. We, We need to hear the voice of this Son of Man and how awesome it is that in life, Jesus has all authority that Jesus has all power and all dominion. So you, add, you say, Adam, you know, you're talking about a lot of theology, about the divinity of Christ. It sounds very repetitive. You know, it's amazing how sometimes some people get bored with that. But the reminder should be like, as you study this and you see what Jesus is saying about himself and you go back and put the cross-references together, you're like, that's unbelievable that this man is claiming to be both son of God and son of man. This, this means that he's fully God but fully man. He was tempted just as you and I are, yet he's without sin. He, he overcame temptation in the power of the Spirit. So can you. This means that Jesus, just as Jesus defeated death and hell and the grave, so can you when you're looking to Christ who is your life. Uh, listen to me this morning. Theology is practical. And when it gets down into your blood that Jesus has all life and all authority, when it gets down into your veins that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man, it changes a person. It's a high view of God. We must understand all of who He is so that it changes us and it's fleshed out then in our life. It's it's a high view of God that puts into action the work of a believer. Such was the case of George Mueller. Mueller was a lover of God. He was a lover of preaching. I don't know if you know this, but he was a pastor for 66 years. He he was a lover of orphans. He knew what it meant to live in want, and he knew what it meant to have plenty. Mueller knew what it meant to step out in faith and trust in a God who is Lord over all. 
he established an orphan house that had an impact on hundreds of children. In fact, by the time his life was done, he had started five orphan houses that ministered to over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. George Mueller was also a lover of theology. Mueller was led to embrace the doctrines of grace, and in particular, it was the sovereignty of God over salvation and all things that changed his life and had a profound impact on his behavior. You may know that George Mueller didn't make his needs or requests known, but rather chose to trust God when it came to shortfalls at the orphanage. And here's why he explains why he did that. If you've ever wondered, well, why, why didn't he make his request known? Is it okay for me to do that? Well, George Mueller didn't do it. Well, why, why didn't he do it? Here's what he says, quote, the gifts have been given to me without one single individual having been asked by me for anything. The reason why I have refrained altogether from soliciting anyone for help is that the hand of God evidently might be seen in the matter that thus my fellow believers might be encouraged more and more to trust him and that also those who know not the Lord may have a fresh proof that indeed it is not a vain thing to pray to God. You hear what he's saying? If you follow his life, once he came into contact with the sovereignty of God, it encouraged him and changed him to such a degree that he knew nothing was impossible with God. And he began to step out in faith because the theology of who God is and who Christ is and all of the attributes of God began to move in his heart in such a way as he had that better understanding that he knew that God would, would, would answer his prayer. He was emboldened to lean upon God to provide for his ministry that, that he stepped out in faith and just begged God to do it. Here, here's what I'm saying. The more we understand this amazing truth of the life and the authority of the Son, the more we understand that Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, is going to help you in your life step out in faith. It's not for us to study and stay, again, you know, in our high theological towers. It's for us to study and be like, because He's the Son of God, and because He's the Son of Man, and because He has all authority and He gives life, I want to get busy doing what He's called me to do in the power of the Spirit. I mean, Jesus said it this way. In John 4.34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Do you get that? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Here's my fear. As Christians who love God's word and love theology, sometimes we think his food is only the Bible. Now, is the Bible food and sustenance? Absolutely. This is where we come. This is where we eat. This is where we feast. But that's not what Jesus said. In this context, he said, my food is to do the what? Is to do the will of him who sent me. Did you ever consider the fact that God's food is not just knowing, but also doing? God's food is not only the word of God that you read in your head and that you hide in your heart, but the food is also you and I being active, doing what God's called us to do. And so my prayer is that when we look at the power of the Son of God and the Son of Man in Jesus Christ, that that would get us going that that would be part of our food, but part of our food is now to put that in action in serving. 
right here at PBC. Maybe God has called you to help out with the children's ministry or to host a small group in your home or, or maybe God's called you to, to watch the children of another couple so they can get out for an evening. Maybe God's called you to help a neighbor or a friend or to serve until it hurts. And what I found and what I believe happens in a church is when we stop serving, it's not just because we get lazy, it's because we don't have a high view of God. When we see God in all of His glory and it gets down into your butt, it goes into action because our food is to do the will of Him who sent Christ. Our food is to do the will of Him who sent us, who saved us. Maybe that means God's calling you to be a missionary. Maybe that means that God's calling you to be a pastor. Maybe God's calling you to change jobs so that you can have more time to devote to His service in any way He sees fit because our food is to do the will of him to do the work. Well, let's move on to a third heading that we see here as we seek to understand Jesus' voice, the awesome thought of the future resurrections. Verses 28 and 29, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of of judgment. And so here what we're seeing is we're not only to marvel at the fact that Jesus has all life and all authority, we're now being told to marvel at the fact that one day he's going to raise the dead. One day he's going to give life and execute judgment, and it's going to happen in the physical realm. Remember, there is an already but not yet resurrection for every person who has ever lived, either a resurrection to life or a resurrection to judgment. And this is how we see it here, is there, there's even a, a preview of, of this at the crucifixion. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 and 52? It said, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. You remember that passage? You're like, man, what's going on with that? I mean, it's kind of like these people have been dead for years and even centuries. I mean, can you imagine? It doesn't say that they died and they came resurrected and went right back. It said even after his resurrection, they walked around in the holy city. That means for at least three days, some of these dead people are walking around. Talk about fright night. I mean, that's more scary than any haunted house I've ever been to. Can you imagine? Hey, kids, there's great, great grandma. She's walking around. There she goes right there. For three days they walk around before they go back. So that's a little preview of that particular resurrection of Christ himself and even of these bodies getting up of what he's talking about here. So let's, let me just try to simplify it. I know we're out of time, so you can dig in these cross-references in your own time. But let me just give you it as simple as I know how. Okay, We're talking about there are two resurrections. Okay, A, the resurrection of life. And obviously, B will be the resurrection of judgment. That's what he's talking about here in verse 29, that these will come out to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Okay, so let's talk first about the resurrection of life. The resurrection of life in some passages is called the first resurrection. It's called the eternal life. It's called everlasting life. And so you have this resurrection of life which is as unto heaven for all the faithful. And this resurrection happens, this resurrection of life happens in three phases. Okay, the first phase would be this. It's going to be Christ 
the first fruits. And so turn with me. I'll just have you turn to just one passage. Okay, it's the First Corinthians 15, 23, because you see this outlined. So we're talking about this a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. The resurrection to life is seen in three phases. And it's in 1 Corinthians 15, the best chapter on the resurrection, both physical and spiritual in the Bible. And if we'll skip all the way down, let's say to verse 21, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, for as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. Here's our verse, verse 23. But each in his own order. So he's saying, hey, there's a resurrection, but there's got to be a certain order. And what's the order? Christ, the first fruits. So that's the first phase of the resurrection of life is Christ, the first fruits. First fruits. Jesus's physical resurrection around 30 AD was the first phase of the Christian's resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come. His bodily resurrection serves as a template and a guarantee for all who live in him. Phase one, Christ's first fruits. Phase two, the church saints. The church saints. Notice how again 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, but each in his order. What was the first one? Christ, the first fruits. Now here's the second one. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So first Christ will be raised up. And then those who belong to Christ will be raised up. And we can read about that in a text that I believe describes the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so I believe that this second phase of the resurrection of life is the church saints that will be raised at the rapture. Okay? There's a third phase to this resurrection to life, and that's Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. And like I said, you'll have to dig down on this a little bit because it can get a little bit complicated, and unfortunately... That's not what we'll have time for here, but I'm just saying that I think what Christ is alluding to is this first resurrection of life includes him talking about his own resurrection, the resurrection of the church, and the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the tribulational saints. Then he talks about a second resurrection, and that would be B in your outline, the resurrection of judgment. And that resurrection of judgment is what he says when he says, uh, those who've done good to a resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And I believe that's shown in Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, when it simply says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So at the end of the millennial kingdom, at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 5, there's a second resurrection there's a resurrection of judgment, and that would lead right into the, the great white throne judgment where the goats don't make it into heaven. Okay? So one last time, the Bible gives two categorical resurrections, one of life and one of death. The first one, or the one of life, happens in three phases. The last one happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. All right, you can dig down on that a little bit more on your own, but let me close this with this last point, C. The resurrection you are in is dependent on your faith, that's your next blank, dependent on your faith, but evidenced 
by your works. Because we can't get confused. In verse 29, if you just read verse 29, it makes it sound like, well, if you've done good, it'll lead to life. And if you've done evil, then that's going to lead to judgment. And yet you and I know better. We know the Bible is broader than that. These verses do not teach that you're either saved or sent to hell based on good works or on evil works. No, we understand that you're made righteous by grace through faith, according to Ephesians 5, I mean Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And those who don't become regenerated by the Spirit of God will not perform good works, because if you are saved by the grace of God, Ephesians 2.10 says basically there's works that you'll do that were predestined that you would walk in them. So if you're really saved by God's sovereign power, you'll also really do obedient works by his sovereign power. It's impossible to be saved and have no good works. And that's where James says, you have faith, I have works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Are you following me? So just don't get confused that somehow it's all of a sudden based on your works or lack thereof. No, it's based on repenting of your sins, having faith in Christ. And so let me ask you, how about it, church? Are you walking with Christ this morning? Has your life been truly changed? Are you leaning on Christ and on Him alone for your salvation? Are you abiding in Christ? Are you surrendering everything to Him? Because He is coming back, and there will be a resurrection of life for those who love Christ and live for Christ, and a resurrection for judgment for those who don't. You know, when I was a boy growing up, we went to a church that hosted a ministry called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Anybody ever heard of that? Heaven's Gates and Hell Flames. I see a few of my brothers and sisters out there. And this was kind of a drama where the church would be blacked out. There would be, uh, you know, like a big book up front and people from the back. So the drama starts and there's some music and there's some stuff going on. And the, the people are walking up. And over on this side, there's hell. And over on this side of the, you know, church building, there's heaven. And as people walk up, they died, and they talk about whether they were in a car wreck or they had cancer or what caused their death. And then they're like, oh, I'm kind of here. I wonder if I made it to heaven or to hell. And I remember them taking that book, you know, and they would see, let's see if your name is in the book of life. You know, and they start turning through these pages, you know, and they start looking and say, now, what was your name again? You know, and I just remember as a kid, I'm sitting there, I'm like, oh, my word. Like, this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. And sure enough, they would have this one person that you would think would get in. You're like, nice person, did all these nice things. They seem to talk the talk. And then Jesus would be like, I can't find you in here. Sorry. And all of a sudden, they would play like the horror music. And this thing would open up, you know, hell's door would open up. And it's like these strobe lights. And these demons would come out with pitchforks. And they would grab the individual and take him over there and sling him into hell. And there would be shrieking and gnashing of teeth, you know. And I just... Man, that makes, a, that makes an impact on an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> so while, while in many ways it, it was kind of done a little overdramatic, maybe, it had kind of an Arminian thrust, you know, at the end, you know, just say this prayer and you can be saved and avoid this and get this. But at the same time, there's a little bit more reality to that than we like to think of. It is true that according to God's Word, that on that day, all will hear his voice. And you will hear either him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or depart from me, for I never knew you. And so while we can kind of throw stones a little bit at some dramas that try to depict what that looks like, the truth is still in the scripture. 
It is heaven or there is hell. And so I think that we ought to be a little sobered this morning just thinking about the reality of what that is going to be like. And so three things to think about as we close this morning. How will you live your life knowing that you were already saved but not yet glorified. I hope this already but not yet concept in Scripture actually serves you in a way to say, praise God, I'm already saved. I, I want to be glorified one day. And so how does that encourage you? How does that help you in your life to realize you're already resurrected spiritually, but one day we have our glorified bodies to look forward to? Number two, how does the fact that Jesus gives life but also executes judgment hold you accountable? You see, Jesus is not only the lamb, he's also the lion. Jesus is not only life, but he also executes judgment. So there's some accountability in our relationship with Jesus, the judge. Third, are you marveling? Are you marveling, which actually means extraordinarily impressed, at the thought that one day you will hear his voice? Does that cause you to marvel? Because again, verse 28 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for opportunity to spend a little time in the Gospel of John today and try to gather our heads around all that Christ says about what these resurrections look like, about what these resurrections uh, will be for every person who's ever lived. And Lord, while it some, in some ways we don't want to try to scare people into heaven who aren't honestly changed through repentance and faith and the sovereign power of God, but in another sense, Lord, we don't want to just put off these thoughts as if it's no big deal or not frightening to think about Jesus the Savior and Jesus the Judge, the voice that resurrects to life and the voice that resurrects to an eternal death. And so I pray, God, if there be in this room at this moment a boy or a girl or a man or a woman that has never heard your voice to bring into their life spiritual resurrection from death to life through the gospel of Christ, I pray that on this day, in this place, at this hour, that you would call that individual out of darkness and into eternal life. God, for those that you've saved all by your grace, I pray that a message like this would stir us up, that we would realize that Jesus is all authority, has all authority, and has life, and that would move us into action, that our food today, God, as we think about it, our food would be to do the will of him who sent us. And so, God, I pray that we would put this theology into action evangelizing this week, reaching out to the lost this week, talking to our families this week about whether or not we're in the resurrection of life or in the resurrection of judgment. God, help us to hear your voice. We know nothing can stop our ears from hearing the sovereign voice of God who calls. And so I pray that you would do a special work of saving grace and salvation and even sanctification in our lives today based on what we've learned from your word. I pray that Christ would be exalted in it all. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.